Hi, this is Zoe Routh, and welcome to the Zoe Routh Leadership Podcast, where we talk about all things people stuff, especially when it comes to leadership. One of the things I love to think and read and write about is culture. Have you ever been in a toxic culture at work? It's horrible. I have to say that in every job, when I had a job uh, in an organization, I have loved. And I've worked at places for a long time. And during those times, at each one, there was a time where the culture went a little bit skew-if. It went a bit haywire and it turned toxic. They all recovered, but I remember going through those times going, why is it so? Why can such a great organization with great people have a culture that devolves into something hellish? Well, I've been studying this and learning heaps about it. And today's guest has also done the same. And I'm looking forward to sharing this interview with you. I recorded before Christmas. Uh, He's an awesome speaker. And he's going to tell us about how to turn a toxic culture around amongst a whole bunch of other subtleties when it comes to culture and interactions at work. Now, before I get on to introducing him, I want to share a couple of updates. I'm back from Italy and Japan. I had an amazing odyssey of five-week break. Oh my goodness, I think it's been for ages since I had such a wonderful, relaxing holiday. And so I took a dose of my own medicine and actually tuned out and tuned in to where I was at the time. And I'll be sharing some of my insights around the traps in Japan and Italy in a separate episode. In fact, this is my next announcement, is that I'm going to be doing the occasional solo-sode. And I think I'm going to call this Thought Nuggets. It'll be brief, so you'll still get the weekly amazing interviews with experts and people who do leadership in the trenches, so people who are leading organizations. And in between, I'll do these occasional thought nugget solo-sodes. And I think what I'll focus on there is what I'm reading, because I'm a voracious reader and I like to do book reviews, stuff that works and stuff that doesn't, just to give you recommendations, and what I'm thinking, so what I'm learning from this. So stay tuned for that. We'll probably get our first solo sode out next week. Depends how this week goes, you know, being first week back at work after such a long holiday. And the next thing I've got to announce is the book. My next book, People Stuff, The Power of Perspective for Better Leadership. That's the working title at the moment. Just working with my editor, and it looks like the editing schedule, and there's a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes with book writing. It looks like it'll be out in June. So I'm going to be sharing some insights and research as I go through writing the damn thing. I'm about halfway through. I wrote a whole bunch of chapters on various trains going through Italy. So I'll be writing this thing and sharing updates and insights on the podcast as we go. And you'll get all the latest news here on the podcast and also on the blog. If you haven't signed up to the blog yet, go to zoerouth.com. You should see prompts there in a pop-up to get the People Stuff Toolkit. Love to have you reading as well as listening. Almost done these huge announcements. Amplifiers, that's my uh, wonderful community of leaders from various different sectors who come together quarterly to get our deep work done. One of the struggles I find with leaders in their work is they don't have time or can't find the time to do the big picture thinking that makes a big difference to their business and their work. So this program allows them to do that once a quarter to reflect on what worked and to plan for what's coming. And we focus each quarter on a different theme. The theme for this quarter is culture. And we've got a masterclass this Friday in Canberra. 
I'll be starting amplifier groups in Brisbane and Wagga. That's our intention for this year. So if you're in either Brisbane or Wagga Wagga and you want to get on board, shoot me an email, zoe at intercompass.com.au, and I will give you all the details. Last announcement, and then we'll get on to the guest. The review. If you like this podcast, if you love this podcast, and even if you don't, I'd love your feedback. And you can go to ratethispodcast.com slash Zoe. Ratethispodcast.com slash Zoe. Zoe is spelled Z-O-E. And it will give you all the instructions and links to rate this podcast, the Zoe Routh Leadership Podcast. All right, phew. Now, on to our wonderful guest. His name is... Colin D. Ellis. And he is one of the most fabulous people I know. I absolutely adore him. I've known him for six years, I think now. He is from Liverpool, so he has the most amazing accent. It's so fun to listen to him. He's funny as hell. He's written a number of books, and his latest is called Culture Fix, How to Create a Great Place to Work. He's amazing. I hope you enjoy it. Let's do it. Yay, Colin Ellis. I am so thrilled to have you on the podcast. You're such a good mate. I've known you for a couple of years and you're doing some amazing stuff and you have a brand spank new book out. So welcome. Thank you, Zoe. Great to, <laughs> it's great to be here. It is good to be here. And we were just talking about your socks because you are known for your beautiful socks. So what have you got on today? So I've got Andy Warhol socks on today. I'm sure Andy Warhol will be delighted that his artwork now appears on, on socks. You know what? Before you go, we're going to take a picture of those socks. <laughs> And we're going to put those in the show notes so that we can, you know, style, sock style of Andy Warhol on Colin Ellis's feet. That's awesome. Maybe we could do a socks podcast. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> I'm sure there is. Yeah. Um, so globe, Global Globetrotter and a brand new book on culture. Now, you and I both love people stuff and we love culture stuff. What's going on in this book? So what's the premise behind it? The premise behind it, I, you know, as, a, as you well know, Zoe, I was a permanent employee of other people's cultures for 30 years. Some great cultures, some not so great cultures. Every organization that I worked with wanted to do teamwork better. We never really used to call it culture. We called it teamwork. They always wanted to do it better. And as a, you know, kind of as a team member, then as a manager and then as a senior exec, I wanted to find a book that could tell me how to do this thing called culture. Because as you and I both know, there's lots of... I don't know if, if it's like hidden truths about uh, about culture or people who don't disclose what it is in order to make this mystique about it. We talk about culture change is hard, but it just doesn't seem to be a book. And I thought that I would write it. I thought that, you know, even though project management was my life for 20 years, what I was great at, part of that was was building great teams, building great cultures. And, I, and so I thought, right, well, someone should write the book about how to do this thing called culture really well that they could just pick up and do themselves. So... That's the premise behind it. Very good. The handbook for building great culture is mm. like every leader wants that thing. And they want it, especially when they realize that the culture isn't going so well. That's when they sort of really want it. So you say that culture change isn't hard. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's not. Um, uh, and, and, and I can say that because I've done it. You know, I, there are lots of people out there say things like, oh, it's not hard. Oh, why don't you? You know, I, I loved it. I, I read something recently. It's like, oh, if you don't like your job, just give it up. I'm like, yeah, you can't really do that. You know, I've been in a position where I needed the money. You know, you can't just give up your job. And I, and I think people say culture change is hard because they've never actually put the time and effort into learning how to do it well they don't they just say it's hard you know the the analogy i use is when we're teaching kids how to ride bikes 
we explain the process and what's involved and putting one foot forward and how the mechanics of it work. Then we set them on their way. Then they fall off and we pick them up. They fall off. But eventually they learn how to do it. And then they're good for life. But we don't ever teach people how to change culture. We don't teach them the mechanics of culture. We don't teach them... If you put all of these bits together, this is what great looks like. Oh, and if you fall off, this is what you have to do to get back on. We don't teach people that. And, and you know, a big part of what I do now is to do exactly that. And you, you do something similar as well is we teach people how to be kind of great together. We teach them how to create safe environments where they can do their best work. And so I think once organizations get into the pattern of, well, let's teach our people how to do it, it becomes so much easier. Mm. And what's the most surprising thing that people learn when they when they learn how to do culture with you? Uh, the most surprising thing usually is just how funny the workshop is because they're not really expecting that. They're expecting some dry, boring topic on culture. <laughs> and you know me, Zoe, I don't do dry and boring. I can't do that. Um, but also, actually, when you break it down at just how simple it feels, that's not to say that it is easy, like immediately. You've, you've got to do a lot of hard work as a, as a team or as an organization to get to know each other, to hold each other to the behaviors to to unlearn some of the things to challenge some of the biases that you have and to make time for innovation but just how quickly you can make the change you know I always say it takes between nine and 18 months to change a culture and that's been borne out certainly in the work that I've been doing the, the teams that really want to change do change that's pretty fast like most of the other literature I've read says you know three to five years for a big mm. culture change do you think is it your system that makes it faster or is it the size of the organization that makes a difference or both? I think it's the commitment and the courage of the individuals. Um, nice. Now, sure, I give them a system. Of course I do. And, and certainly for the larger culture programs that I do, I go back and hold them accountable every month. But really, it's about how much do people actually want to change. The three to five year thing. So I did a lot of digging into that as part of research for the book. It's like most things, like the whole 70% of change programs fail. It's a myth, right? There's, there's no proof that the three to five years, that's just what consultants put out there in their research based on how long their tenure lasts within an organization. Slightly <laughs> cynical thing for me to say. You're um, going to need to work with me for three to five years. That's right, yeah. We're going to have to spend at least $3 million to this thing to work. Yeah, it's not, it, you know, and often what you'll see in that three to five years is this continual churn. So cultures just get built up, destroyed, built up, destroyed, built up, destroyed. Whereas cultures evolve all of the time. Mm. And so it's really down to the courage and the discipline that people have to want to make the changes necessary to see it stick and do you help people self-identify with that like for example do you say if we're going to do this work you need to have courage or do you invite people who have the courage already to come to the table like is there an invitation piece or is there a dictation piece oh it's it's all an invitation because as soon as it's a dictation you've created a command and control environment that's Mm -hmm. probably what they've already got kind of most organizations at some stage with regards to culture you'll have the senior management telling them that they need to collaborate more telling them that we need more innovation telling them that they need to be more agile and of course the inner child in us just pushes back against that and goes yeah no thanks Mm -hmm. we don't want to do that so it has to be an invitation but for the bigger culture change programs that I do and you know the one here that I'm doing in Canberra the CEO's really got to make a statement and then they've got a role model kind of what good looks like they've got to say listen what we're looking for is evolution of the business to go from here to here this is why we need to do it you know generally it's about uh, long-term sustainability but we want you to come with us so we're going to give you this opportunity now 
to define what you need to do your best work such that we can hit the, the results that we need. So it's very much about a language change. It's very much about a behavior change. And, and then the way that I set the programs up is I'm going to give you all the information you need to be able to do this thing yourself. Whether it succeeds is down to you and the decisions that you make. Mm. You know, and I'll do these two-day programs where people say, okay, well, we feel that we've got the courage and determination, so we don't need you to hold us accountable. And I'm like, great. I do these quarterly things where they think we just need to check in every now and again. And then these the monthly sessions are really for people that want to make change and need the help to do so. Mm. But ultimately, Zoe, it's about giving them the information that they need. Because when I'm not there culture's still there it's not like I take it away with me in a suitcase and it's gorgeous and vibrant and then I bring vibrant back mm. it's still there so they have to want to do it themselves and and they've got to have the courage to manage out those people that get in the way yeah and that's one of the tough ones right so I interviewed another gentleman Craig his interview will be coming it came up earlier this year and he talked about that so when you go into making a culture change program and sometimes people just don't fit you give them the best and what he means by that, it's not fit culturally, it's more support the values That's and right. agree to the behaviors. Is that what you mean too, when having the courage to help somebody transition out? Yeah, yeah, that's right. But, but what you've got to do is you've got to reset expectations. So you've got to give everybody the opportunity to be part of something that's being created. What you can't have is kind of Colin sat over, over there throwing stones. We say, listen, we're running this culture workshop, which is for us to define how we want to work. You need to be part of it. If they don't want to be part of it, they're immediately signaling that they don't want to be part of the culture. And you can have the conversation straight away going, okay, well, we're going to have a, to have a conversation. Um, but ultimately, it is about living the values and living the behaviors that the group then sets. Because as a group, you're then able to say, mm, hang on a minute, Colin. We agreed in the workshop that these would be our values. This would be our emotional compass. We agreed that these would be our behaviors. But you're not doing that. And, you know, for me as a, as a former manager, I knew when I had the culture right because all of those things happened and took care of themselves without me ever finding out. Mm. And then something would happen and I would go, okay, so what's going on? They were like, oh, we had to have a word with Josh because of this. We had to do that about two months ago. We think it's relevant that you step in now. It's where the culture manages itself. But yet it is about adherence to values and behaviors. Yeah, I love that. There, there's so many challenges with doing this. And I'm thinking about some of the task-oriented businesses that I work with where looking at the people stuff seems very unnatural to them, seems like a waste of time to them. Do you work with any sort of task-oriented, uh, left-brain kind of organizations who are systems-oriented, or do you just shy away from... No, I, I would say 70% of my work is with task-oriented, left-brain organizations. Yeah, right. So I'm not quite sure how that is. It's not like I set out, you know, I drew the brain and wrote a bunch of company names on the left side and go, right, I'm going after those guys. <laughs> I, I find that the, the majority of approaches come from organizations that have traditionally seen the people stuff as fluffy. Mm -hmm. But they do recognize that it's only through culture that they can have achieve, you know, as a business what they're looking for. But they, they need help with doing that and I think I appeal to them because you know firstly I've worked in a lot of those left brain environments and secondly I've kind of got a down-to-earth approach and I think part of the problem that we've had with culture and culture development programs or people stuff which is why I love the way that you've branded your things is we make it hard for people to understand mm -hmm. you know so when I'm working with a you know kind of electrical engineers or any engineers you know I'm working with rail engineers as well is if I go in and talk about engagement and capability development 
you know, just not going to work. You know, I've got to talk about how much of a damn you give about your job and I've got to talk about how we develop you so that you can be the best of you, so that you've got the skills and you've got the knowledge so you can be great at your job. You know, all, all of a sudden there's a connection that you make and, 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 and I think that's been missing for too long because we've always looked to consultants and I did the same myself to kind of guide us with regards to any kind of cultural evolution. Uh, but I think there's a recognition now that not only is culture important, but it belongs to us. And it's about, well, how do we make it easy for people to understand? I love it. Out with the consultants, off with their heads, in with power to the people. The That's... Bolshevik revolution is at hand. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's not, it's not that I've got anything against consultants. I haven't. And, you know, often I feel for them because they're dealt a really bad hand. They're asked to fix something that they have no control over. They'll willingly take the work. That's the problem I do have. Um, they'll willingly take the work. But, you know, I'm working with a couple of great consultancies who, who recognize that, you know, where they can add most value is by working with the client to co-create something at the start so that they both can succeed. Mm, rather than just saying, here you go, I've done the report, off you go. Off you go. Oh, by the way, we've justified another $2 million worth of work in. If you don't do this, you're screwed. Uh, which is not all consultants, of course. So I'm interested in, and a lot of my clients are too, is how to measure culture, particularly if you want to do a culture change program. You need to know where you're starting, obviously, and where you want to get to. What's your approach to measuring culture outcomes? Well, I think, you know, the, the traditional route, of course, of course, is the engagement survey. And, you know, and the engagement survey really gives you a sense of, okay, how do we feel right now? The problem I have with the engagement survey, it, there's a couple of things. Firstly, where it's mandated. As soon as you force people into it, they're going to tell you what they think you want to hear. And secondly, it's often skewed by the way that they feel at that particular moment and isn't representative over, over a period of time. The ultimate measure of culture is how happy people are. So, you know, you've got all these other measures, engagement, profitability, fewer safety incidents is a, is a good one. Uh, you know, more innovation, faster time to market. All of these things are great measures of culture, but the ultimate measure is how happy are people? Mm. You know, and that's the thing. So I encourage all of the people that I work with in culture to measure culture every month. You know, and the, the questions I ask is on a scale of zero to 10. Take the NPS approach. How happy do you feel right now? Mm. What made you give us that score? Uh, what's one thing we could do to make you happier? You know, and it might not be about work. You might love your job, but you might hate the fact that the fridge is 12 feet away from the sink or the kettle. Do you know what I mean? It's a little bit. You might hate the fact that the toilet door swings inwards when you're coming in. You might <laughs> hate the fact that senior people get a parking spot and you don't. You know, they're, they're the things that really often affect culture that we don't try and measure. And do people actually report on that stuff? Of course they do. They love reporting on that <laughs> stuff, Zoe. They do. So one organization, that fridge one, is an actual thing that happened. So we did, uh, as part of my as really? part of my two days, the second half, I do a bit of a hackathon. I do an innovation workshop. But I talk about kind of fixing some of the dumb stuff. And one of the dumb things that came up was something like the fridge was, I think it was eight feet or eight and a half. Someone went and measured it, of course, left brain environment. Uh, someone went and measured it. Um, that was eight feet away from the kettle or something like that. And anyway, they got a chippy to come in and make a cabinet for the fridge and it cost them $300. And people were delighted. You know, they talked about it as being part of the culture workshop. Or like, it wasn't part. I was like, someone came up with the idea, but you could have done that outside of the workshop. But yeah, they love that stuff. That's so funny how these little, high, like I call them hygiene stuff, mm. makes such a big difference. 
And it's less about, you know, do we believe in the organizational <laughs> purpose? Sometimes it's that little crappy stuff. Yeah. And often it is. You know, I had the great pleasure of interviewing um, Don Price at Atlassian for the book, who very kindly wrote the preface. And we were talking about the kind of day-long hackathons that they have. And, you know, one of the winning ideas was changing light bulbs. What? In the San Francisco office because they got really, really hot. And he said it's really as simple as that. People think that we're trying to create the kind of new Jira or the new Airbnb or the new Uber. It's like sometimes it's as simple as changing light bulbs. And that's what makes people happy. What about different patterns of like clothing attire? I mean, do people complain about that, that they have to wear a suit or they have to wear this or anything? Does that come up in culture stuff at all? It comes up. Yeah, it comes up quite regularly. But I think only where it's mandated about what you need to wear. And, you know, some of the best cultures that I work with what they do is they have a they have a code and they expect people to adhere to the code but quite often policies are really ambiguous like smart casual is classic so for me i'm smart casual right now right so i've got a white shirt on i've got a blue tie i've got my andy warhol socks and i've got a pair of jeans but they're nice I don't think jeans. I've ever seen you in jeans yeah before, i know actually. yeah i'm running a, a different kind of workshop a this bit afternoon of an experiment. Well, I'm dressing for my client and I think, you know, for me, it's important that I do that. Um, but smart, this is smart casual to me, uh, whereas smart casual for one of my peers was a pair of shorts. Ooh. Yeah. And, and he was told by our boss at the time is like, yeah, that's not smart casual, but it didn't actually say no shorts, Yeah, you know? And it's one of those things is as teams, you, you know, and, and, um, Brian Chesky, who's the CEO of Airbnb talks about this all of the time. He said, you know, the better the culture the less process that you require. Because actually what you've got is you've got mature people who say, this is what it means in this context, this is what it means in this context, this is what it means in this context. And so the best cultures do that. It, it's not about having everything written down in kind of ISO type folders. It's about, well, this is what this means right now. And you know, if I'm going out to work with my clients, I have to think about, well, what's the style of dress that's suitable for them? You know, I worked with some engineers three weeks ago I did a, a workshop with 60 engineers. They have Dress Down Friday. And the, the, the person that brought me in, Colin, just to let you know, it's Dress Down Friday. People will be in T-shirt and jeans. Now, I don't really ever wear T-shirt and jeans for anything, right? <laughs> you know, sometimes when I'm doing the housework, I would. Uh, but I wore T-shirt and jeans. Oh, my God. Yeah, I know, because that's what the clients were doing. If I'd have worn a, what I would normally wear, they'd be like, look at that corporate idiot. <laughs> and how did it feel of, like, presenting in... You know, jeans and a t-shirt. Uh, it felt liberating, but mainly I felt like I was being taken seriously. Oh. Because I, you know, I think... And, it, and it's one of the things culturally that we forget is that everybody's different, right? We talk about it, but we don't really recognize that. So everyone requires a different type of communication based on what they're doing, kind of the environment they're in at that time. But not only that, is people will view you differently based on either how you dress, how you act, how you talk, mm. the words that you use. And so I think, you know, it's something I spend a lot of time thinking about. You know, it's something that I teach as part of culture workshops. And something I used to teach my project managers when I was head of project departments is like, you're supposed to be the role models for communication. This is how you do it because you're taught by your parents and mm. mostly they're rubbish at it. Mm. Yeah. Just coming back to the dress thing. So I'm thinking about a little case study. Um, where the experience I had in this workplace, we weren't working on culture, we were working on other pieces. And there was one of the senior staff, she loved to dress to the nines. Like she looked amazing all the mm. time in corporate gear. So she had really fantastic dresses and heels and everything. And it was a very informal business. Like it was, it was not a corporate business at all. 
and it did a lot of recreational type of work. So everybody else was dressed differently. Yeah. And she'd been given feedback that the way that she dressed made other people feel uncomfortable. And yet she wanted to dress the way that she did because she's like, that's who I am. I want to be authentic. Yeah. And she was the boss. So how would you approach that? What kind of conversation would you have with her and the team around that? It sounds like a woman after my own heart because that's, <laughs> that's exactly what I did. You know, I remember emigrating to New Zealand in 2007 and went to work for a transmission company, so electrical engineering essentially. So it's all engineers. And I would just turn up in my suit. I remember that we, we implemented, the, the, the organization implemented corporate dress, but they didn't mandate it. I remember the CEO stopped me in the corridor once. He's like, oh, Colin, he's like, see, you're not conform into the corporate dress i'm like patrick it's not really my thing i was like this is my thing this is how i feel comfortable it might seem alien to you but this is how i feel comfortable and so when i talk about this stuff in in the workshops and i do touch on it in the book it's important to recognize different people's personality preferences because my personality i'm quite an out there extrovert which means i take style and fashion very seriously so that's just my thing Right, And so you have to accept that that's my thing. I don't do it to make you feel uncomfortable. I don't do it to be corporate. I once joked, someone said, oh, if you meet Richard Branson, he'll cut your tie off. I'm like, really? I don't think he will. Um, <laughs> we can have a fight about that one, Richard, if you're listening. Um, it's important that we recognize everyone's personality preference for what they are. And just clothing is just kind of one part of how we display our personality. Were you in a leadership position? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what I found was my peers started to dress like me. I'm like, you, you, don't, you don't have to do that. I was like, I'm not doing it to try and be corporate. But that's where I brought, even though I looked very corporate, I had a very matter of, you know, I like to use humor a lot. I, you know, I have a very down-to-earth way of talking about things. Um, and so kind of what you see I remember I remember one guy I got on a train and this I, this guy turned to his mate and was like look at that guy money makes you sick right at the time I owed 50 grand to the bank when he said that I had nothing we had nothing we had absolutely nothing and I think there's this perception often when you kind of dress I don't know and a bit smarter that you're trying to make a point and it's not. But again, we don't teach people stuff. You, you do a lot of uh, personality work in your people's stuff. Mm. And we don't teach people that it's just part of your personality. It's funny how <clears throat> it pushes people's buttons. Mm, so yeah. the way that you're describing it, it, obviously how you showed up pushed a few people's buttons, you know. Should I scrub up more? Should I, yeah. you know, how am I coming across? Because obviously Colin looks fantastic. And I suspect it was also the case for this senior lady is that, she was gorgeous and she looked stunning in her work. And I think it pressed people's buttons. Like, do I scrub up as nice? You know, mm. um, am I as polished as her? And I think it can play on people's insecurities. But you're right. I think regardless, the most important thing is actually to talk about it and mm -hmm. to bring up awareness of it and to create the environment where you can actually talk about that. Um, so then it becomes no big deal if somebody wants to dress up or dress down. Yeah. Uh, and that there's... It's a discussion about it. It's, it's the unsaid stuff that creeps in and gets a little bit wild. And that's the thing. So we would always talk about in my in my other roles. We would always talk about it whenever we build in teams. You know, I would talk about the difference between people's personalities. And just because I dress like this, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm high and mighty over everybody else. It's just the way that we present ourselves is the things that matter to us. The other thing as well, though, Zoe, is I would always take the opportunity to dress down from that. So so I would always look to go out into the field. So same same thing with my client here, is I went out in the field, I put all of the safety gear on to show that you're not precious about it. 
Mm. And so when we had dress down Fridays, you know, this would still be my dress down gear. And I'm still smart, but I'm still dressed down. Yeah. I'm not wearing the stuff all of the time. That would make people really uncomfortable. Not only that, you're kind of saying, oh, well, I'm, I'm above that. Mm, that's right. Yeah. So toxic cultures. Uh, mm. I saw recently you had an article. I saw a post on LinkedIn of how to recover from a toxic culture. Mm. Well, toxic cultures are not very fun places to be. And I'm curious about how you would describe a toxic culture and what your tips are for people to turn that around. Yeah, toxic cultures are bad. I mean, nothing, you know, I joke all the time that nothing good is toxic except whiskey. Uh, but nothing, <laughs> like, li- toxic cultures kill people. So they're high anxiety, high stress. You have high attrition, so lots of people leave. Good staff leave. There's a sign of a toxic culture. You've got people telling each other how busy they are all of the time, like no one else is busy telling you how hard they work. You know, I love all of that stuff. People using people's names to beat me with. Like, oh, Zoe said, if you don't get that report by Friday, you're in trouble. You know, love all of that stuff. And so they're, they're, they're really bad. But, you know, what people forget is it's not easy to change toxic cultures because what you're talking about fundamentally is the behavior of a small number of individuals. And those people pull us down. And where it becomes widespread is where people choose to conform to the toxicity that they see. Mm. Then all of a sudden it becomes a cancer mm. that everybody's got. Mm. And all of a sudden nothing's happening and we're fighting and the, the language that we're using is really bad and we've got real low emotionally intelligent behavior. That's not who we want to be. And so often we haven't given people the insights on how to be the best version of themselves, but mostly it's because we haven't addressed the poor behavior or performance. And people walk past poor behavior all the time. And it's, I would say it's the foundation for every toxic culture is poor behavior that isn't dealt with. Uh, yeah, you spoke earlier about accountability around that. So, and in the culture design pieces, how do we create our values and behaviors that we want to be accountable for? How do you help people determine accountability? And like, what does that actually mean? Because I hear that a lot. Like, we need to hold each other to account. And the question is, how do you do that? So how do you explain how you do Yeah, well, I talk about delivering on your promises because accountability is a very corporate word. Mm. And so I talk about, you know, kind of delivering on the promises that we've made to each other. And so when I run the workshops, it's very personal. So we come up with a set of behaviors. I've got an exercise. But then, <clears throat> excuse me, we talk practically about what it means to put that behavior into practice because too often these kind of exercises like, oh, we've got five core behaviors. Like, and they're always like integrity, innovation, collaboration, like all the stuff you should be doing anyway. Got these five behaviors like, okay, so what does innovation mean for my team in this context right now? Because only when you take it down to that level can you then say, okay, well, which of these are you going to do? Which are you good at? Because we're all good at some stuff and it's important to acknowledge the stuff that we're good at. But what are you going to change about you? Because in order to kind of move from toxic culture to a vibrant culture, you've got to look at yourself in the mirror and say, I've got to change. Because when you've got a toxic culture, everyone is part of the problem. Now, some people are bigger problems than the rest. I get it. But, you know, you not addressing the behavior, you're part of the problem. That's a really powerful statement, actually. When you have a toxic culture, everyone's part of the problem. Because I think there's times when I've been in a toxic culture and I haven't felt like I was part of the problem. And I think as soon as you own that, Mm. then there's a chance 
for changing it. Yeah, that's right. And I'm, and I'm not suggesting for one minute, I want to make it absolutely clear that you're if you're being harassed or if you're being bullied, you're to blame for that. That's not what I'm talking about. Right. I'm talking about to get to the point where a culture becomes toxic, mm. somebody hasn't held someone to account or someone hasn't reported something that they need to, or else we haven't created an environment where it makes it okay to do that yeah. kind of thing. You know, and I've worked in toxic cultures myself and I've been bullied myself um and it's only when i actually chose to do something about it that i that i felt that i was part of the solution not the problem for far too long i excused it before i went over my manager's head and reported it and did it formally and kept notes and all the stuff that you don't want to do but you've really got to do mm-hmm. but ultimately in toxic cultures managers have got to look at themselves in the mirror you know i had a meeting with with one group not so long ago and they said oh we've got a toxic culture we hear you're the guy to help us change it i'm like no if you've got a toxic culture you're the people that will change it all I can do is get you to a point where you've redefined what vibrant looks like. But when I'm not here, your behavior will go back to the way it was right now. Because if you'd all been behaved role models for this thing called vibrant culture, you wouldn't have a toxic culture. Now, of course, it went down like a lead balloon. <laughs> but, you know, the best way to start any engagement is through honesty. Yeah. I was like, you guys have got something wrong. And it was mainly guys, which was also a problem. I was like, but you guys have got something wrong. There's not much in the way of cognitive diversity. There's not much in the way of new thinking or new ideas. From the outside in, you're doing the same old things you've been doing for a long time. Not only that, you've got some brilliant jerks who you're scared to let go of because you think your business will crumble if you lose them. It won't. Yeah. I love that trap as well. I've heard that too, where you have somebody who's, who's brilliant at producing results and is such a, well, let's use inappropriate expletive <laughs> around other people. And yeah. people hang on to them far too long and tolerate their pettiness and their petulance and their peacocking or whatever it is they've got going on. So when you hold people to account and you've got specific behavior, so let's yeah. talk about collaboration. So collaboration, you actually need to articulate what that means. It means that... For example, if I'm going to collaborate with you, Colin, that means that on a Tuesday, I'm going to come to you with my work on this project X, and I'm going to ask you for input and incorporate your ideas. Is that the kind of granularity you get to with people? Yeah. Most collaboration fails, uh, Zoe, because we don't agree. We don't agree expectations. We're not very good at setting expectations. Mm -hmm. So we're not very good at working together. Because if you don't set expectations, you don't know what you're working towards. We don't agree on communication. So we don't, we don't say, right, Zoe, what's your communication preferences? You're like, oh, I prefer face-to-face. Okay, cool. I'll check in with you once as we go this week. We'll set expectation up front. I'll check in with you once. If you're all good, have that thing delivered by Friday. Or we don't say, right, if you prefer face-to-face, we'll have a workshop. So what if you have <clears> two different communication preferences? Like mm. you prefer face-to-face and I prefer text. What do you do with that? It depends who's on the receiving end. of. The, if, if, you're, if you're working for me, I'm always going to do it the way that you want to do it. Always. If you're working for me, I'll do it the way that you want it. Yeah. So if you prefer text, then I'm going to have a chat with you oh, and then okay. I'm going to confirm by text. So the leader the leader varies their behavior to the support their team. Oh, all the time because yeah. you're in service to other people. Yeah. Because if you're not in service to other people, you're not a leader, you're a manager doing things the way that you want to do them, not the way that the other person wants them to be done. Yeah. And so this is, you know, it's a, it's a massive problem that we've got in organizations is managers don't know how to vary their communication style. I mean, everyone's got the same problem, but managers especially. So, you know, this kind of various stage that we go through, but I should be good at all of the communication. So if you prefer text, I'm going to be like, you know, hey, Zoe, just checking you're on track. If so, no need to respond. 
because you're like short, sharp, direct. Mm. But I've got other people who who wanted to sit down and have an informal coffee. They wanted to chat about their weekend. Cool, I'm happy to do that. You know, I've got detailed people who just send me a bullet pointed email. That's a way I prefer my information. And so this thing called collaboration, we just assume that everything is a meeting. And we've got ourselves into this nonsense scenario <laughs> where, where we have back to backs all the time and make no time for work. Yeah. So you're like me, you love people. Hmm. Do you find any of the people stuff hard? I the, the hardest part about my job, it's a question I get asked a lot, is reading research. Um, and learning organizations that I work with. Everything I do is tailored, so I learn everything about the organization. That's the hardest thing, because I have to sit down and kind of go through detail. I have to sit down and kind of understand abstract views and kind of deal with some of that ambiguous nature, the way that information is presented and makes sense of it. That's easily the hardest part of my job. If you said to me, Colin, I, I didn't tell you, there's a trap door here and underneath there is a stage and you have to speak to 10,000 people. I'd be like, press the button, press the button, press the button. I want to go now, I want to go now. Um, but yeah, kind of all of that detail stuff, I've always, I always find, because my personality doesn't want to do that. Yeah. And so... I've got good at it, you know, I've got some systems now um, that I can use to help me gather the detail. Uh, but that's the hardest bit for me, definitely. Have you ever come across an individual or a group that you found extremely difficult to deal with? Um, there have been groups that have been tough for the first half day of a two-day workshop, let's say. Particularly on culture, because sometimes they just don't want to be there. They kind of tacitly recognize the importance of it, Zoe, but usually their boss has said, this is a once-only activity, you need to be part of it, blah, 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 blah. And so they naturally push back from it, but then they find it's not what they thought it was going to be. And generally they play ball. We had one guy who was just a disruptive influence. And so we had to dismiss him from the workshop. And they performance managed him out because he was a problem. And they knew that going into the workshop, but they wanted him to be part of it and all of those kind of things. And the culture lifted as a result of that, which is incredible. Mm. And it's not an outcome I ever want. I never wanted to see people leave the business. I never wanted to see people's livelihoods threatened as a boss, I as a manager. I hated all of that stuff, hated it. But ultimately, everyone's got a role to play. And, and so I make that clear up front that, you know, it's about the sum of everybody, um, not just the individual. So you do get them from time to time. But I'd like to think that I've got a few tactics to help me get through that. Like humour? Humour's a big one. I, you know, it's something that I grew up with. I'm very fortunate to be a part from the UK, Liverpool, which thinks it's funny. And, you know, I study a lot of stand-up comedians. Someone asked me recently, oh, what research are you doing right now? Because I was talking about the book. What research? And I was actually doing research around stand-up comedy because stand-up comedians are some of the best deliverers of a message. Yeah. And it's so well-crafted. But also there's that sense of fun waiting for the message. And so, you know, I kind of attended my first year of boring workshops as a permanent employee and never, ever wanted to do that myself. So I think humour can be important if delivered in the right way at the right time. Yeah. Who's your favourite stand-up comedian after all this extensive research? Oh, gosh, so many. Uh, so my favourite one growing up is Steve Martin um, right. because I came across him in my late teens um, uh, watched The Jerk, the movie The Jerk, and then I rented it on VHS, and there was a short film on before there called The Absent-Minded Waiter. And then we went, look, me and a friend went looking for all of his stand-up, and what I loved about him was his just stupidity. In a world that was becoming ever more serious, here was a kind of 30-year-old guy with white hair just being stupid. And I 
I kind of loved the simplicity of his message and the, the way that he kind of would make you laugh. Uh, but, you know, I loved so many great comedians out there, male and female, you know, Kristen Wiig, who used to be on Saturday Night Live, fabulous. She does some great impressions, some great characters. I love Ricky Gervais oh, in I The love Office. Him. He's so smart. Yeah, he is very clever. Jerry Seinfeld, you know, again, another smart comedian. And, and the way that they deliver their lines is, is so very different. Jerry Seinfeld puts so much effort and emphasis into his, whereas Ricky Gervais will generally joke about the same six things. It's <laughs> <laughs> interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Jerry's got a more diverse portfolio of material. Yeah. yeah. Chris Rock is another guy who throws away his act and then will write it from scratch again whereas Jerry Seinfeld will do all jokes and bring them back and the, the, the audience is waiting for them you know so I kind of take inspiration from that so I've got a, a few old older gags I would say in my workshops that I will bring back because you know they, they always work but then I'm constantly writing new material the IP's got to be good though remember because if if you don't get your, what, what you want from the culture workshop people will be like ah, oh, that was really funny but yeah. yeah, what was the point? <laughs> yeah, what what was the point? It just felt like a stand-up comedy routine. Mm. I never want it to be that until it is. So yeah. we've done favourite comedians. Yeah. Final question, because I'm a bookworm. Mm. <laughs> favourite leadership book that you're reading right now that you would recommend? Uh, well, so we're coming up to a period of holidays here where I'm taking a bunch of books away. Um, one that I've just finished... I just reread uh, Turn the Ship Around by L. David Marquet. Yeah, right. And the reason that I've read that is because I'm going to be working uh, with a, let's say, a military organization. And so I really wanted to get a sense of some of the rituals that they have within their cultures. And what I love about Marquet's writing style is General Stanley McChrystal wrote one called Team of Teams, which I really enjoyed. But they're quite, how can I put this? quite direct and I often read them and think there's no way I could apply that it's very direct it's very military but Marquet's style is one where I love the way he writes it makes it accessible it makes it easy to digest I read it and thought yeah I could introduce that into some of the work that I do obviously giving full attribution but just some of the things that he talks about I thought it was it, it's just such a an easy to digest leadership book in what is quite a challenging environment Mm. Mm. you're the second person to recommend that book oh really okay. it's sitting quarter of it read in my kindle at the moment so okay that must be a sign gotta read this book um, I'll put a link to that in the show notes along with pictures of your socks socks yes thank you <laughs> and where can people find you LinkedIn is probably the best place you know I do a lot of stuff on LinkedIn I um, you know I'd like to share a lot of information again as a former manager myself I want to share as much as I can so that other people can take inspiration from that we set up a community so you can find me on the culturefixcommunity.com that's another place or website culturefix.xyz really yeah. xyz xyz ever the contrarian being slightly different I love it yeah Cole it's been fantastic thank you so much you're a wealth of information great stories and it's always a pleasure thank you so it's great thank you Wasn't that a cool interview? He's so much fun. I just love Colin. And uh, I feel I'm very privileged to call him a friend and colleague. Uh, so I think there's some awesome things that we can take away from that particular interview. I guess for me, a couple things that are staying with me is how to measure and manage culture. Measuring culture, I think, in particular, and I'm going to do a little bit more digging on this and really lean into this, because I think this is a make or break thing for a lot of organizations, is how to measure culture properly. And 
other key points that Call made that I think are useful to remind ourselves at that. If you have a toxic culture and you're the leader, you better look in the mirror first. That was pretty potent to sort of like, bing, sang out for me. And the other one is that if you're a leader and you're not in service to the people, you're not a leader. Loved it. Anyway, lead well, live well. Have a good one.